Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. David Foster Wallace says somewhere, I think in one, in one of his essays, that he thinks about the essay as essentially a huge eyeball floating around its subject, attempting to see everything, you know, and attempting to describe everything. And I think you're right, you know, in, in his essays, which in many ways, uh, I think like a lot of readers, I, I prefer to his fiction, even though I greatly admire novels like Infinite Jest. I think that in the essays, he perfects that, that level of extraordinary attention to the world, whether he's writing about tennis or going to a convention uh, or an award ceremony for producers uh, of pornography, or whether he's going on a, uh, a cruise ship to try and write about that experience. Whatever he's doing, he pays the most extraordinary, acute kind of attention. But at the same time, it's all undercut by this this rather lacquerish, uh, self-deprecating, hugely intelligent and erudite, but somehow failing persona that he developed. And you see that formally in the essays, including, as you say, the ones that many of which are, are online. He wrote for magazines, especially in the 90s. You see that a lot of the time in the form of the essay, which kind of dissolves into footnotes and uh, things in the margins. He's constantly kind of undercutting himself and that kind of self-consciousness, I suppose some readers can find it uh, a little annoying. I find it really endearing in his case, because it's like this is the same voice, but it's also, well, actually, this is the voice that is pointing to the great authorial voice and saying, well, actually, really, are you sure? Maybe not. There's a, a very, to my mind, uh, human kind of self-consciousness going on at David Foster Wallace. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. The insightful words of American novelist Joan Didion from her iconic book of essays, The White Album, published in 1979. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to impact the delights and mysterious allure of the essay as a literary genre with Irish writer, memorist and cultural critic Brian Dillon, whose latest publication, Essayism, has just been published by Fitzcarraldo Editions and ask how important is the essay to world literature? In Essayism, Brian Dillon argues, Essayism is tentative and hypothetical, and yet it is also a habit of thinking, writing and living that has definite boundaries. It is this combination that I'm drawn to in essays and essayists. The sense of a genre suspended between its impulses to hazard or adventure and to achieved form, aesthetic integrity. So what makes for a killer essay? Is it possible to define? And is there a link between depression and the essay? Hello, my name is Brian Dillon. Um, I'm a writer. I was born in Dublin and I moved uh, to England about 20 years ago. I teach at the Royal College of Art and uh, I've been a freelance writer for the last 15 years or so. And in that time, I've published, I think, about eight or nine books, including uh, memoir, cultural history, art criticism, and my latest book, Essayism. 
Really well done on the book, Brian. Um, it's always a fascinating read. I have to say, I learned a lot about literature and a lot about the essay as I progressed through uh, through the book, but also a bit about your own writing life and, and your own engagement with books. So hats off to you on that one. I might start with a big wide open question, if that's OK. Do you think a well-written essay can console in some way, that it can kind of arm us or clothe us and make us under- understand the world possibly in a more richer way? I hope so. I think that that's, uh, in a way, the the gamble that I was uh, making when I set out to write a book about essays. One of the reasons I wrote this book is that uh, it's always seemed to me, or it's always felt to me, that essay, or non-fiction more generally, was just as meaningful, both emotionally and and artistically and intellectually, to me, uh, as literature, as anything else, as as plays and novels uh, and poems. So I wanted to explore in some ways the history of the essay, in some ways how the essay works as a, as a literary artifact, you know, how does it work stylistically, technically and so on. But much more interestingly, I hope, um, was I was interested in what an essay might mean to a reader. And you picked up on the word console there, and so there are certain sections of the book that all have the same title. They're called On Consolation, and it's a strain of the book that's, that's much more personal. Whereas elsewhere, I'm really trying to, to make an argument, I suppose, for the literary importance of the essay. Could it be argued, Brian, that the essay itself is possibly the most ambitious literary genre that we have in terms of how it stretches ideas and also the reader? I think you could make that argument. I don't want to make an argument in this book or the essay as being any more important than any other kind of writing. I think there are people who make that argument at the moment, who say that you know the, the essay is in a way occupies now the, the place that the novel might have uh, a few decades ago. I think that the essay is ambitious in the sense that it, it often starts from simply saying, I, you know, the author pointing to herself or himself, starting from their own experience, And from there, it might go literally anywhere. The essay can be about tiny details of the world. It can be about the universe, the cosmos. And I suppose that what I'm interested in is the movement back and forth, you know, between big ideas and very tiny details, between the kind of urgency to tell one's own story on the one hand, to get something out into the world in all its kind of messiness or or, or chaos, and on the other hand, an ambition to be as precise, as formally exacting um, and rigorous as possible. And so for me, the essay is always in a way sort of pulling in a couple of different, uh, in at least two different directions. And when I, when I try to, to put it as simply as possible, I suppose what gets me about great essayists, what draws me in, is the sense that on the one hand, the essay can literally encompass the world. And on the other hand, it has to be something, or I particularly like those essays that have a kind of refinement, a sort of precision about them. Well, we might start at the beginning, uh, Brian, and look at some of the great essays. One of the ones that you've chosen to begin the book with is the French philosopher and um, broad-based thinker, Michel de Montaigne. Can you tell me about his contribution to the essay and the types of essays he wrote? Because I know he wrote about pretty much everything that he, um, I suppose, interfaced with in his own life. Well, Montaigne starts in his essays by saying, by admitting that he's being completely subjective, that he's starting from his own experience. But that's the basis on which he's going to talk about, as you say, all of these other subjects. 
And the subjects range kind of extraordinarily between, you know, history, science, the far-flung parts of the world that, that he's heard accounts of. He has an essay on cannibals. He has an essay on noses. He has an essay on the idea of experience, um, on illness, and so on. So what he's trying to do, starting from his own position, you know, which is, is that of a French nobleman with sufficient leisure um, and learning to be able to undertake this as a project, he's trying to follow, as it were, his, his own intuitions and his own ideas, his, his own thoughts, wherever they will take him. And he knows, and he says it at the outset of the essays, that this is a, not an entirely original thing to do. There had been other writers in the past, and you could think of something like uh, St. Augustine and his confession, writers who start from the I, from the, from the subjective position. But he's trying to, to combine that with a, a wide-ranging, a kind of curiosity about the world, if he possibly can. So Montaigne is kind of thought of conventionally as being the beginning of the, the European essay. And he's very, very quickly an influence on writers in English. He's translated very quickly. And so Shakespeare, for example, read Montaigne. And then he's hugely influential uh, in the 17th century when you get uh, the beginnings of an English essay tradition with people like Francis Bacon, with John Donne, the poet who also wrote uh, extraordinary essays, Sir Thomas Brown, the great physician and essayist, and, and so on. Virginia um, Woolf, the great British writer, believes that the essay must give pleasure or that it was one of its distinguishing features. Do you agree with her on that? I agree with her in the sense that what sets the essay apart in a way from other sorts of writing that it has an awful lot in common with, like, let's say, straightforward historical writing or academic criticism or a kind of more conventional autobiography, say, what sets it apart is that it's trying to do something with the relationship between reader and writer that depends not only on getting your story across or your argument across, but on doing something with the language, doing something with the form of the essay. And so in a way, when Wolf says, you know, the essay has to give pleasure, it sounds very nice. Doesn't it? it sounds like a kind of quite a mild ambition for a writer. But as we know, especially if we sit down and read Virginia Woolf's essays, it also means that every essay is a kind of experiment with the form, the voice of, of the essay. Wolf says elsewhere, she says that the problem with writing essays is to be yourself and not be yourself at the same time. And that, that's very attractive to me, that idea that you are writing from a sort of stable position. You know who you are, but actually you put that self out into the world and it could become anything at all. So her notion of pleasure is not, I think, it's not an easy one. You know, so it's a challenging sort of pleasure. You write in your introductions, you say something on the lines of that you argue that um, please don't call the uh, the essay creative nonfiction or say the essay is the new novel. And you say the essay should instruct, seduce and mystify in equal measure. Yeah, I, I took against, I suppose, the popular phrase creative nonfiction, which isn't really a phrase that any writer would use, I think, about themselves. It's a term that arises out of publishing and, and not from among writers. And it's sometimes used in creative writing classes and so on. I suppose that one of my objections to it is that it suggests that you can make a sort of straightforward choice, you know, to be a creative writer of nonfiction or a non-creative. And of course, these, these judgments are for other people uh, to make, really. The essay is having a moment, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's having a sort of phase the past few years where it's being talked up 
especially by American critics like David Shields and John DeGata, who've both written books about, uh, on the subject. It's been kind of talked up as the place where all of the, or a lot of the kind of literary energy is going now into nonfiction instead of fiction. And I think that there's some truth in that. And I wouldn't be writing this book, I suppose, a book about the essay, unless I, I somehow believed in that. But I think at the same time that you can exaggerate these things and you can kind of begin to fetishize an idea of what it means to be creative in nonfiction. I suppose what I'm trying to avoid in this book is, is making a definition of the essay. And I think that a term like creative nonfiction just sounds a little too, a little too easy to me. And slightly knobby, if you don't mind me saying so. What do you think um, George Perec um, offered the reader in terms of his writing, in terms of his essays and so on? Oh, Perec is, is one of my favourites. Perec is most famous, I suppose, for his fiction for novels like Life, A User's Manual, and great novel, uh, which in French is called La Disparition, The Disappearance, but it can't be translated as The Disappearance because it's a novel entirely without the letter E. Perec is an experimentalist in fiction, but also in nonfiction. And some of his great essays are about tiny details of the world. He wrote an extraordinary piece in the mid-70s that describes simply the objects on his writing table. Uh, he wrote uh, a short book, um, again in the mid-70s, in which he sits in a square in Paris, Place Saint-Sulpice, I think, and he describes through a cafe window, everything that he's seeing, buses passing by, pedestrians, children, dogs, etc. And so what he's interested in doing is tricking himself, as it were, into describing the world in the minutest, most detailed, strangest terms, because the risk he takes, the gamble he takes, is to say, you know, if you put a frame around the world in a particular way, it might just be a cafe window. It might be taking out one letter of the alphabet from your book that constraint allows you to see all kinds of other things. So Perek, to me, is, is, is a real hero. He's also funny. He's light. You know, there's, there's a quality of lightness uh, in his writing that I think is often very important and that, in some way, often distinguishes the essay from, let's say, more scholarly or academic kinds of writing, is that, that quality of, of a kind of delicacy but also humour. He was a believer in the list, wasn't he? And he, as he said, he used to describe in detail lots of the kind of his belongings or whatever it was. I'm just wondering, you pitch up a very interesting question. You say, is there ever such a thing as a happy list in literature? Yes, I'm really interested in lists in both in, in fiction and in non-fiction. And, you know, even if you read something like Perek's list of the objects on his table or the foods that he's eaten over the course of an entire year, which is another one of his, uh, his essays. There's something funny about them, but there's also something melancholy about that act of, of listing. And with Perek, there's something sort of haunting that, which is the loss of his, his parents during the, the Second World War. And so he, he seems to have a kind of attachment to objects. They don't have to be objects that remind him directly of his parents, but they seem to embody something of, of memory of the past that he's trying to hang on to. So I was kind of interested in the, in the book in what happens when an author simply lists things that they are seeing or experiencing. And uh, it seemed to me there's something sort of doleful about lists. There are also strange things on the page. You know, the, the great lists in fiction, or the greatest lists in fiction, are probably the lists that appear in Ulysses, the lists of people who come to a funeral, the lists of trees, 
that go on for page after page. And it's a strange form in some ways. And I think essayists often use it really, really interestingly. Do you think there is a link between um, depression and the essay? I know that you write, writing any sort of writing has become a matter of distracting myself daily from the urge to destroy myself. Do you think the essay lends itself into kind of more um, probing and introspective writing in some ways? So one of the things I was interested in doing in the book, or rather one of the things that happened while I was writing the book, was that it started to become about my own relationship with writing uh, and with reading certain readers, certain writers, um, essayists in this case, who seemed to have said something to me over the years about the experience of depression, um, which I have experienced myself on and off, but seemed in some ways not simply to, to help in a very straightforward way, but it seemed like there was some kind of relationship between my experience and, and what I was reading or how I was reading those those writers. There's a long history of um, essays about melancholy. The most famous in the 17th century is Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, in which he tries to say something about this disease or this disorder that, that, that seems to have overtaken him and many, many other people uh, in that period. And he ends up writing about everything. You know, he ends up writing uh, a whole kind of medical theological history of uh, of himself and the world around him. It's almost as if, you know, when, when you start writing an essay about melancholy or about depression, everything feeds into it. It becomes becomes about everything else. So writing about that subject is, is a kind of particularly heightened version of the essay, I think. I know that you mentioned uh, quite a few books that were in your own family home when you were growing up and how you your own personal engagement with the essay. You 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 came across uh, Ronan Barthes when uh, you were in your late teens, I think. And it was at a time when your mother had died and that you were trying to reconcile yourself to the new realities of life and where you fitted in with life. Can you tell me about that? Well, yes. I mean, when I was about 16, when I was when I was more or less exactly 16, actually, in the, the summer of 1985, my, my mother died. Uh, she was only 50, and uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't entirely out of the blue, but it was still obviously uh, a great shock and an ex- extreme event in, in my adolescence. And I think in some ways I reacted by burying my nose in a book. And one of the things that I did regularly was that we lived in Harold's Cross and it's outside of Dublin, and we we went to Rathmines Library regularly. And at the same time, I was reading uh, a lot of music magazines. And there were writers at that period who used to refer to a whole kind of constellation of you know, nonfiction writers, journalists mostly, um, people like Tom Wolfe and Norma Mailer's journalism and Susan Sontag and uh, Jermaine Greer and so on. And in among all these names was Roland Barthes, uh, the great French critic and uh, literary theorist, I suppose. And I discovered one of his books in uh, in the library and really, to be honest, couldn't make head nor tail of it the first time. But I went back a year later um, and started to read him properly and discovered this was a kind of extraordinary writer. What I didn't know at the time was that Bart had written a great book about the death of his own mother, Camera Lucido, which is partly a book about photography, about the nature of photography and the history of photography but really is about the fact that he had just lost uh, his mother a year before. So he's, he's been a really pivotal writer for me because he, he embodies this kind of point 
that I, to me is, is one of the most attractive things in any writer, in between the world of ideas and a much more vulnerable emotional state. And he's, he's always somehow kind of floating in between these two things and never quite committing himself to being just an intellectual on the one hand or just a proper writer, as it were, uh, on the other. I haven't read any William Gass. How, how good is he and who should read him? Everybody should read William Gass. William Gass is an amazing writer. He has written just a handful of novels, some of which are very short and most of which are very long. Uh, he's a great short story writer, but he's, I think his, his most lasting uh, thing, he's now about 90, still writing. Uh, his most lasting contribution, I think, is in his essays. He writes about all kinds of subjects, but he writes an awful lot about literature itself. And he's the most extraordinary stylist. The book of his that has been most important for me is a book called On Being Blue, which came out, I think, in 76 or 77. And it's supposedly a book about the color blue, uh, but it ends up being about everything. It's a very short book, but it's just bristling. Uh, He has a very strange kind of intellectual, but kind of cheeky and sometimes salacious voice. And his, his writing just sounds delicious. It sounds like nothing else uh, on earth. Uh, he's also a, a maker of lists. He's a, he's a great maker of lists. So yes, everybody should read William Gass and start with On Being Blue, uh, which was reissued a couple of years ago. You sprinkled some lovely passages from uh, some from some terrific essays all through all through the book, and there was one that really um, um, stood out for me, and it was um, Elizabeth Hardwick's essay, "A View of My Own," and it was um, what she wrote about um, the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas. I was wondering, could you read it out because it really is it's such a magnificent piece of writing. Yeah, Elizabeth Hardwick is is one of my favourite essayists. I only discovered her a few years ago, which is a bit shameful, really. Um, I should have known about her before. Uh, She's probably best known because she was one of the founders of the New York Review of Books. Um, She was also married to Robert Lowell, which which was a difficult difficult job in itself, I think. Um, But she wrote a lot of extraordinary essays about literature. And one of the best uh, is in her collection, A View of My Own, from 1962. And it's an essay about the death of Dylan Thomas. And I'm just going to read you a, a short passage from this because it does something really interesting, I think, at the level of both language and emotion. He died grotesquely like Valentino, with mysterious weeping women at his bedside. His last months, his final agonies, his utterly woeful end were a sordid and spectacular drama of broken hearts, angry wives, irritable doctors, frantic bystanders, rumors and misunderstandings, neglect and murderous permissiveness. The people near him visited indignities upon themselves, upon him, upon others. There seems to have been a certain amount of competition at the bedside, assertions of obscure priority. The horrors were more and more vague, confused by the ghastly suffering needs of this broken host and his final impersonality. There are so many strange things about that passage, uh, including phrases like this broken host, and his final impersonality that are quite unclear, but strangely compelling. But the thing that struck me about it was was actually at the beginning of that passage when she says, he died grotesquely like Valentino. And I always read it when I read it the first few times as he died grotesquely like Valentino. But it's not, there's a comma, he died, comma, grotesquely like Valentino, comma, with mysterious weeping women at his bedside. 
And the strange placing of the comma does something curious, I think. You sort of trip up on it. And for me, one of the great things about Hardwick, and maybe this is one of the great things that the essay itself can do, is to give you the kind of emotional content, but it does it in this way that estranges it at the same time. And that happens with, with a great, really skilled writer, skilled essayist like Hardwick. It happens even at the level of where she places a comma. And and that creates a magical space between the writer and the reader because you're you're discovering um and it's also quite active, isn't it? I think so you're you're forced to kind of go back and uh, and reread. Susan Sontag said somewhere uh in her diary that Hardwick that people said about Hardwick that it was as if she wrote by leaving every second sentence out. And Sontag thought that was a good thing, you know. Uh she doesn't explain everything. A writer like Susan Sontag, who I also love, kind of wanted to explain everything. You know, she wanted to be absolutely as clear as, as possible. And that's the kind of great virtue of her, her prose. But somebody like Hardwick is content to leave certain things out or to choose somewhat strange words, to arrange her sentences in these, these somewhat eccentric patterns. And then something else happens. Uh, she said herself that the greatest influences on her her own writing uh, were the prose writings of poets. So when poets turned to writing autobiography or uh, criticism, say, these were the things that she really liked. And I think that you can hear that. You can hear this particular, not quite poetic, because poetic prose can be a bit a bit limp, a little bit affected. But there's something kind of much more rigorously poetic in, in Hardwick. You have some very interesting stuff on Susan Sontag. And, you know, she was such a prolific writer and had such an impact on culture and um, intellectual discourse and on lots of things. And she spoke, she was quite an activist on a lot of different social issues and so far reaching in a lot of different ways. But one of the curious things about her is that she suffered tremendously from self-doubt. And that really came out in the diaries her uh, son brought out a couple of years ago. It's, it's, it's fascinating to see how you can get superb essays, terrific books, outstanding interviews from these great public intellectuals, yet in their private life, crippled with anxiety. Absolutely. I mean, in, in Sontag's case, her, her public persona was mostly so confident, so assured on the page uh, and in person. But one of the things, there are now, I think there are three volumes of her, her diaries that, as you say, were, were edited um, and published by her son after she died. And I was interested partly in the, in the fact that, you know, diaries might be a form of essay in a way. And that with a writer like Sontag, you're getting, in a way, sort of the same writer uh, in the diaries and her notebooks, but in some ways a very different writer. And the diaries are the place where she invents Susan Sontag. You know, she, you can see her even as a teenager telling herself how to become a writer she doesn't just do the things that lots of beginning writers do, making lists of books that she's read and books that she should read, words that she's found uh, attractive or interesting that she might use in her writing and so on. But she literally says to herself, you know, uh, don't smile so much. You know, don't be so charming. Don't be so eager to please. Uh, she's training herself uh, to be the, the most exacting, the hardest thinker, you know, the, the, the most clear and sort of diamond sharp thinker. 
And that doesn't involve pleasing people. Um, and she has to remind herself to do that. She's also, as adolescence goes on and then in, as a young adult, and actually well up, well, all the way through the diary, you know, until well into middle age, she's also suffering. You know, she, her, she finds kind of disappointment in her love life absolutely agonizing. And she's constantly undermining herself. You know, she's constantly unsure of herself, even in the 1970s and 80s, when you would imagine that she, a writer like Sontag would feel 